Alrighty, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. We're studying through the book of Acts, verse by verse and chapter by chapter. We find ourselves in chapter 13 this week. We're going to look at verses 13 through 41. It's a long section that includes a sermon by the Apostle Paul at a synagogue. In fact, Paul is invited to present the sermon as he attends Sabbath services at the local synagogue. The title of our message, Saturday's All Right for Preaching. Let's just read verses 13 through 16 to set the context. Now when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them, saying, Men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Then Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. Let's pray. Lord, we're here to listen to the voice of your Holy Spirit as he is with us and within us, seeking to lead non-believers to Christ, seeking to teach and encourage and comfort believers. And I pray that this text, Lord, written so many years ago, would speak to our situation today where we live and work and play, that we would understand that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever, and we would get from you the principles that we need so that we can know your love for us, experience your grace in our lives, tell others of the joy of your salvation. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. You and I are not likely to attend a synagogue service where we will be invited as guest rabbis to share about Jesus. I guess it could happen, but probably not. Our text, though, got me thinking, am I seeking out situations where I might be invited to share? It can be shown statistically that a Christian's meaningful contact with non-believers gradually declines the longer they walk with the Lord. If that is true and we want to reach people, we're going to have to take the initiative to be around them. Paul and Barnabas were on a mission. In every city, they attended the Sabbath day services at the synagogue. They knew that they'd be invited to share. You and I are commissioned. We're to go into all the world sharing Jesus Christ, wherever we find ourselves. We may have to actively seek out people or groups of people to associate with so that we are in a position to share with them. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, seek out people who may ask you to share. And number two, speak out to people when they ask you to share. Let's start in verses 13 through 15. Seek out people who may ask you to share. Synagogue means a gathering or an assembly. Although not mentioned in the Old Testament, synagogues probably originated during the exile in Babylon when Jews could not attend the temple at Jerusalem. By the first century, when our story occurs, each community of Jews anywhere in the Roman world had its synagogue. The building was usually rectangular, its doorway faced Jerusalem. Along the walls on the inside were benches. A board of elders supervised each synagogue, and there were other officers, such as the rulers. The services in a synagogue consisted of scripture readings, a talk that we might call a sermon, 
and various prayers being offered. Visiting rabbis would always be invited to deliver the sermon. Paul was a rabbi. He was a former student of the revered rabbi Gamaliel. Thus, he knew that there was a good chance he would be invited to share whenever he attended a synagogue service. He had an open door with an audience familiar with the scriptures. And so Paul would put on his rabbi outfit, and they did. Rabbis wore specific clothing. And he would go to the synagogue. Somehow they would contact him. They probably had a first contact team like we do. And, you, you know, you're a visitor and you're a rabbi. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? And somehow Paul you would get around to letting them know that he had studied under the rabbi Gamaliel. It's not unlike people wanting to know your credentials today. Oh, where did you, you know, go to school? Where did you get your degree? That kind of thing. And, you know, you're a rabbi, but who did you study under? Gamaliel. And this was like an open door. I mean, Gamaliel was the big gun in those days. And so this was an exciting thing. Little did the Jews in there know that he was going to share with them about Jesus Christ. Uh, and yet Paul had this open door. And so that's our setting. And so in verse 13, it says, When Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. Now, after a successful and eventful ministry tour on the island of Cyprus, the missionaries returned to the mainland. John, also called Mark or John Mark, he was Barnabas's cousin, young man, he went home to Jerusalem. Luke called it a departing. Later in the book of Acts, we'll see Paul considered it a desertion. When Barnabas wanted to take John Mark along with them on a subsequent missions trip, Paul said, forget about it. He did not want to have anything to do with it. And the two split company and went in opposite directions. Now, we're going to talk more about this split when we encounter it in Acts chapter 15. But just briefly this morning, since it's a very important episode, I want to point out a couple of things. Paul certainly cared about John Mark. You don't go through the world preaching Christ, being beat up, uh, robbed and imprisoned for your faith if you don't care about that message, which is the compassion of God towards individuals. And so he cared about John Mark. But he had more of a big picture mentality that put priority on the mission. Hey, he doesn't have to go with us. Last time he went with us, he flaked out. I can't afford that. I can't be looking after John Mark on this mission trip. There's too much at stake. Barnabas certainly cared about the bigger mission. You didn't go out on these missions unless you cared about those kinds of things. But he seemed to have a sensitivity more to individuals that would supersede the mission. Who was right? Neither one of them were right. They're both right. They're all kinds of leaders with their various styles. There's no one right way to do this. The exhortation here isn't about Paul or Barnabas, it's to not be like John Mark. He flaked out. There's no doubt about it. Now, we can excuse that. We can say he was young, or there's a, we'll get to a bunch of excuses when we get to talking about that. That's all fine. But he flaked out and deserted Paul and Barnabas when he was supposed to be assisting them. And, and so, if you want to get into this, say, I don't know about Paul. I'm more like Paul. I'm more like Barnabas. That doesn't matter. Don't be like John Mark. Make commitments and keep them as unto the Lord. 
And so in verse 14, when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia, and they went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. Paul and Barnabas had been sent out by the church at Antioch. This is a different Antioch. There were about seven Antiochs in the first century. Do you realize there's a lot of cities with similar names in the United States? When I think of Miami, I think of Miami, Florida, not Miami, Ohio. Make sure when you're doing your Expedia.com, you get the state in there, otherwise your vacation will be ruined. Be like one of those Bugs Bunny cartoons. Remember how he'd tunnel? And he'd throw out all of his beach gear, and then he'd come, Miami Beach, here I come! And he's in Siberia being hunted by Elma Flood. Anyway, man, it's the medicine I'm on. But uh, actually, I just really love Bugs Bunny. Is there any better bunny than Bugs Bunny? Uh, So, you know, so this was just a different Antioch. It's Antioch at Pisidia. And so in verse 15, after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them saying, men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Paul's mission was to the Gentile world, but he always started in the local synagogue among Jews and uh, Gentiles who were sensitive to Judaism. In verse 46, he's going to say that it was God's desire that the Jews get saved and take the word to the Gentiles. God was not, and he is not through with his chosen people, Israel. Now, I said earlier that uh, Christians have a tendency to get into a position where they have minimal contact with non-believers. Two years is the amount of time statisticians say that it takes for us to substantially reduce our relationships with non-believers. Some of that is natural and even necessary. After all, we are called to separate ourselves from the world, but separation isn't isolation, and it doesn't mean a policy of no contact. And so let's be practical about this. Most of us go to work or we go to school. It's easy to begin to think of coworkers or fellow students as a terrible trial that we can barely endure. I know I've done it. I've talked to people over the years who've done it. You come in, man, I'm just having such a hard time at work. I just want a new job. The people, they despise me and they're putting me down and overlooking me for promotion. Or I go to this school. It's a godless school teaching atheistic evolution and all of this stuff. And, 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 and if we're not careful, we start to think of that in negative terms. And I think sometimes we have to step back and think, hey, this is the world. You are a Christian. This is exactly what you would expect. They ought to be mistreating you at work if you're a Christian. The schools ought to be hammering you about what you believe. And and you know what? It is so easy to be a Christian in those environments because you are so different than everybody else. It's an opportunity for you to shine and to share. Is it difficult? Sure. Is it hard? Yes, but what a blessing. And I think sometimes we need to recapture that. I remember as a young Christian starting out at Calvary Chapels, they were telling me, hey, you're going to be persecuted at work. And I was, and I loved it. I thought, wow, I'm being persecuted at work. What a great thing. I'm I'm like in the Bible. (laughs) They're telling me this is going to happen, this is happening. And I was in the 
I was a title insurance salesman. I was the assistant vice president sales manager at this office. All the people I worked for were high-powered executives who had burned out several families, divorce, remarriage, divorce, remarriage, alcohol, drugs. All they did was live for the greenbacks. They were working 18, 19 hours a day sleeping underneath their desk. I mean, these are heavy-duty people. I'd come to work, go home, spend time with my family, talk about church. They hated me. I remember my boss on several occasions absolutely cussing me out, taking me in his office, beating on his desk. One time he got up and started hitting the wall with his fists. He was a lot bigger than me. And I'm a lover, not a fighter. And so I thought, man, this is getting serious. You know, this could be an assault situation. And, and uh, I mean, it was crazy stuff. I loved every minute of it. It was fantastic. One time our company, God had protected me, and our company was under investigation by the Department of Insurance. And then we got raided by the Department of Justice. It was fantastic. I I mean, it was the greatest thing in the world. It just, wow. And so I I loved it. And it's easy to lose that sense of being around non-believers. And we want to recapture that. Think of them as your synagogue, as a group that you sit amongst. Think of ways you can be invited to share with them or at least be ready if they one day ask you about the Lord. We may need to actively associate ourselves with some service club or organization or group that is not specifically Christian. They become another synagogue, another place where we could shine and share. I'm not suggesting anyone return to the world where you will become stumbled and fall back into sin. I am pointing out that many times we lose our sense of outreach. We have a tendency to become ingrown. We only want to be around Christians rather than people in the world. When considering new ministries, we have a tendency to concentrate on things we can do as Christians with Christians. That's okay, but we also need to concentrate on what we can do as Christians towards the unbelieving world. And so... Develop a strategy right where you're at for reaching the lost that you already sit among at work, at school, in groups that you're a part of. Maybe you need to find a group that you can sit among. To paraphrase a common saying, think outside the body. We need to think. You get it? A couple of you got that, yeah. It's lame, but it's, you know... If you can't be funny, at least get groaners, you know, and stuff. I'm the king of the groaner. But we do. We need to think outside the body sometimes. It's natural. I'm not, not rebuking anybody. I do the same thing. We're always thinking about ministries that, that grow inward. One of the brothers was telling me after uh, first service, he says, yeah, it's like when you, when you prune a, a tree, you have to get rid of all the branches that grow inward because they're not fruitful. You prune those out. And churches have a tendency to, you know, we start out and then we grow inward. We only want to do these Christian things with Christians, nice and safe. We find that all the time we're adding more and more input and we don't have anything going out. And so if you want to establish a ministry, find a group of people that needs to hear about Jesus. And let's get behind that. Now, as we go on, speak out to people when they ask you to share, verses 16 through 41. 
When asked what is the most difficult thing about being a Christian, by far most believers will answer, sharing my faith. Yet it is something we want to do and we find exhilarating when we do. Paul stood up and gave a sermon. It was the appropriate method for the situation that he was in. You probably won't be asked to give a half-hour sermon. The appropriate method for you will be more conversational. It will be more natural. But it should contain the same elements that we find in this synagogue sermon. And so let's read and study it in its context with an eye towards gleaning from it the basics that we need to share Jesus Christ. Verse 16 Then Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and all you who fear God, listen. And so there were Jews, and then the men who feared God would be Gentiles who uh, were proselytes to Judaism. And I like to hear Paul uses the Italian method of preaching. He motions with his hand. He's from the Italian school. Do you ever notice your hand motions? They don't mean anything. They They just... I guess they generate something. But anyway, verse 17, the God of this people Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. With an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. Now for a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. After that, he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet. And afterward, they asked for a king. So God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up for them David as king, to whom he also gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all of my will." Now, Paul summarized the call of Abraham and the time of the patriarchs by saying, God chose our fathers. And then he highlighted approximately 450 years of their history from their slavery in Egypt to their deliverance by Moses to their conquest of the promised land under Joshua. The times of the judges followed, then they chose a king, he failed, and they received David as a king. And so very brief but complete summary of the nation of Israel from the patriarchs uh, to the time of David. It was more than a history lesson. If you go back and reread it, you'll see the emphasis was on God working in and through history to accomplish His eternal purposes in the nation of Israel. God chose them. God exalted them. God brought them out. God put up with them. God destroyed their enemies. God distributed land to them. God gave them leaders. God raised up David. And so it's a reminder to that audience of how God was working in and through them to accomplish great historical purposes. God is still working with Israel in and through history to accomplish his eternal purposes. We know that he has set Israel aside for a time. He calls this the time of the Gentiles, where Jew and Gentile are being saved and coming into the church of Jesus Christ. This age will end when Jesus raptures the church, resurrects the dead of the church age and raptures the church. And then God will again begin to deal with the nation of Israel. We'll have the seven-year tribulation, the second coming of Jesus Christ, the establishment of the kingdom of heaven on earth. 
And so we can borrow from this idea. And it's a good thing to do because most people have some sense that Israel is important, more so than just politically. I was asked the other day to give one example of God fulfilling biblical prophecy, and I simply said, the nation of Israel. And the person said, yeah, you've got me there. They knew that something was going on in the Middle East that was spiritual. They just don't always know what it is. But we can use the nation of Israel and God's dealing with them to put that into perspective. Now, the Jews of Paul's day knew that God had promised their Messiah would be a descendant of King David. They knew that their Messiah would be preceded by and announced by a notable prophet. And so Paul is able to boldly declare, beginning in verse 23, from this man's seed, speaking of David, according to the promise that every Jew knew, God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus after John had first preached before his coming the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, Who do you think I am? I am not he, but behold, there comes one after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to loose. And so the Jews held John in very high regard. They, they knew that he was a notable prophet. And they were expecting a notable prophet to come and announce their Messiah. And they knew that their Messiah would be the son of David. And so now Paul just draws this together and he says, hey, you're on the right track. John was that prophesied prophet. And Jesus was that promised Savior. And so he gets right to the point. In the opening minutes of his talk, he mentions Jesus by name. He tells them, it's Jesus that you want. And I think it's good that we use the J word sometimes. A lot of times I've done it. We try and soften what we're saying by saying God. Because I think there's part of us that's fearful. We know that God will be received. People aren't usually offended by God. Although it's getting weird now. I guess there's, there's I haven't followed up on the story, but there's some bishop in the Netherlands who wants us all to start calling God Allah so that we can get along with everybody. Nonetheless, that Allah is not the God of the Bible. Allah was a moon deity that Muhammad decided was top dog. And uh, so when people tell you that Allah is the Muslim name for the God of the Bible, that is not true. It's just not true. It's not true grammatically. Uh, it's not true theologically. And so Paul uses the J word. He talks about Jesus. And then he says in verse 26, men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to you the word of this salvation has been sent. Now this doesn't mean as much to us as it would to a Jewish audience. You have to understand that these Jews in that synagogue and in synagogues everywhere believed they were saved. They were the children of Abraham. They were God's chosen people. You didn't go into a situation like that and say, hey, you guys need to be saved. And that's what Paul was doing. He was pointing out that, hey, you've got a good foundation. God is working in and through the history of our nation. Now you need to see that he has sent the Savior, the Messiah, to save you. People we share with need to understand at some point that they are sinners and they cannot enter heaven except by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. You can't avoid using the word Jesus and you can't avoid telling people they're sinners at some point. You can do it as nicely as you want. 
But people don't want a savior unless they know that they're sinners. They need to know what they're being saved from. A lot of times, people share Jesus as if, well, why don't you try Jesus? You've tried Buddhism, you've tried Hare Krishna, you've tried... Let's try Jesus for a while and see how that works for you. And it's a... Jesus isn't something that either works or doesn't work. He's the person that saves you from your sin. And so at some point, we do need to talk to people about falling short of God's standard. And so now we've let people know that God is at work in human history. He's alive. And, and we've let them know that they are sinners. And we've told them that Jesus is the one who saves. But how can he save since he was put to death? Well, in verse 27, for those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. Now, when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. God raised him from the dead. He was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. And so Paul's audience might have thought Jesus was dead or asked some question along those lines. Well, how can he be this savior when he was put to death? He's not dead. He was put to death, but he has risen from the dead. And the resurrection, of course, is a very vital part of what we need to share with people. Jesus is a living, risen Savior. It may sound funny, but even though I grew up in the Roman Catholic Church and I believed in God and I knew who Jesus was and I knew he was in heaven, one day I realized when I heard the gospel presented that he was alive and a person who I could have a relationship with. And it was stunning to me. It was overwhelming. And so verse 32, we declare to you glad tidings, good news, that promise which was made to the fathers. Jesus came and he died and he rose just as it was written about him from the earliest times. This whole section beginning in verse 27 through 32, Paul is saying, there is nothing new in what I'm telling you. This is all over the Old Testament. All the prophets talked about it. We read about it every Saturday at the Sabbath, all the time in the temple. It's just that we didn't understand it. We didn't receive it. This is not a new message. It's not something additional. It's right there in the writings, he said. Now, this is interesting, too. I've mentioned this to you before, but I, I think it's important. People think biblical Christianity is a relatively new religion. Christianity, Christ, Jesus Christ, first century. There was a man called Jesus Christ. He had some followers. They wrote some things. That's the religion. And they put it on a par with other world religions. In fact, it's not as good as some other world religion because it's not as old. It's relatively new. Then we think of it as a Western world religion. There are Eastern religions. Then there is the Western religion of Christianity. And we continue to reduce Christianity. Listen, Christianity is nothing new. It was formed before the foundation of the world, before the creation, God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit formed the plan of salvation to save lost mankind. Right in the opening chapters of Genesis, when Adam and Eve fell into sin, God promised the Savior would come. 
And then all of human history, really, from Adam and Eve forward, is the story of the coming of that Savior through a certain people, the nation of Israel, to the world. And, you know, I've found that when I explain this to people, it blows their mind. People don't normally think of Christianity as God's initial original plan of salvation. They think of it as a religion and as a bankrupt religion because they've been to church and they were raised a certain way and all of that. And so there's nothing new in our message. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It has always been God's only way of salvation. Paul backed everything he said with Scripture, and so can we. And so in verse 33, it says, God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that he has raised up Jesus. As it is also written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now, this quote is actually about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's not about his birth. It implies that the Savior would be God in human flesh, that he would die and be raised from the dead. The life and death and resurrection of Jesus is an eternal plan, not a human religion. Verse 34, he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. For David, after he had served in his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep, was buried with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised saw no corruption. And so here Paul quotes Isaiah 55, verse 3, Psalm 16, verse 10. He tells them that God promised salvation. He calls it here the sure mercies through a descendant of King David. And then he talks to David about death and burial in a way that his soul would not see corruption. In other words, he wouldn't decay in the grave. Well, they knew that David was in the grave and decaying. And so Paul said, hey, this wasn't ever about David. This was a prophecy of the son of David, the Messiah we're all expecting, that he would die but raise from the dead. Paul knew his audience. As I previously mentioned, they believed a descendant of David were, would be their Messiah. They just didn't know that he would die, rise from the dead. And so he piles on the biblical proof that David's descendant would die and be raised from the dead and that it was Jesus. Now, our audience will be different. As I said, we're probably not going to be around Jews and devout Gentiles in their synagogue. If we know our audience, God will direct us to share Scripture that is appropriate to their expectations and experiences. And one thing I would encourage all of us to do, there's certain things we all like about uh, the Bible or certain topics that we like more than others. And, and there's a tendency when asked a question to kind of get off on our thing that we want to talk about. And that's okay as long as it's going to connect with your audience. I see this, it's so funny. A lot of times we have guys and gals, they want to teach Sunday school classes. And they go into this third and fourth grade class and they start teaching, you know, these fantastic, you know, quantum physics type things, you know. And how it proves that, and the kids are like, does Jesus love me? Yeah, I want to know, how to, you know, and stuff like that. And so, you know, you want to connect with people. Happens to adults, too, uh, where, you know, you want to sound smart. I, a lot of people tell me over the years, oh, I want to see this guy. That guy is so smart. I go, really? Why? And he goes, I, I couldn't understand a lot of what he was saying. He's so smart. 
people are impressed by that. To me, it's just a bunch of obfuscation, but... Uh, uh, we were at Gino's graduation at Fresno Pacific a few years ago, and the speaker used the word obfuscate. And no one knew what it meant. We had to look it up. I still don't know what it meant. I think it means to cause confusion. <laughs> and, and so, I mean, you know, what, what good is it to, to give people information that, that is no good for them but shows how intelligent you are and stuff? And so you need to know your audience, and, and you need to have that point of contact. We're doing a lot with Bible prophecy the last few years. It is a topic I enjoy, I'll admit, but it's also the world in which we live in right now. There is nothing more prevalent on people's hearts and minds than Muslim radical terrorism and, and terrorism in general. What are we going to do? What kind of a world do we live in? They might as well say, like the psalmist says, why do the nations rage? And we have that answer. We know what's going on. We're coming to the end of human history where all the pieces are coming into place so that we will be removed from this earth and the great and terrible tribulation will take place and God will be through with this current timeline. And so Bible prophecy is an open door. All you have to do is start talking about Israel. I went home and picked up Pam during the break, and Israel's bombing the West Bank right now as we speak. There's always something going on in Israel, in the Middle East, with Iran, with Russia, and people are worried about this, and not just worried, they're concerned. And you and I know most of why that's happening. People hate Israel because they are God's chosen nation. The devil knows that his last hope is to destroy every Jew because then God cannot fulfill his promises in the Bible. Do you realize that if every Jew were wiped out, God would be a liar and everything would crumble? Why do you think Hitler wanted to exterminate the Jews? Why do you think other people wanted to exterminate the Jews? Why do you think the world hates the Jews? It's a spiritual warfare. And, you know, I found that people connect with that. They understand, yeah, there's got to be something more going on. And when you can tell them what that is, it's a great open door. Now, Paul is going to close strong. First, he's going to tell them the blessings that await them by believing in Jesus. Verse 38, Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins, and by him everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. The forgiveness of sins and justification are through Jesus Christ. Both are huge topics. Let me just summarize. You are born a sinner. Because you are descended from Adam and Eve, sin is imputed to you, and it is inherited by you. Imputed is a word that simply means it is put into your account. Think of it this way. When you are conceived, God, you find that there is a heavenly bank account in your name. Some of you parents do this for your kids. You know, you start a bank account for your kids so that when they get to college, they have 50 bucks to buy books. <laughs> and... Uh, so you start, when you're, I don't know exactly when it happens, but think of it in terms of you're born and there's an account in heaven with your name on it. The trouble is, the only thing in your account is sin. It is imputed to you because you're a child of Adam and Eve. And you inherit their sin nature. So you're predisposed to sin. You can see it in any baby, in any toddler, all the way through juvenile hall. 
and in our lives as well. And then you commit individual acts of sin. The penalty for sin is what? It's death. Spiritual death, physical death, and ultimately it would be eternal death, which is separation from God. You and I deserve to die. If we are to be saved, someone must die in our place. That someone can, must be God in human flesh. It was Jesus who died on the cross in our place to offer us the forgiveness of sin. You either receive him and his work on the cross on your behalf and are saved, or you reject him and his work on the cross on your behalf and remain as you are, a lost sinner who is thrice dead. The sacrifices and offerings prescribed by the law of Moses could only temporarily cover your sins. We know that they couldn't forgive your sins because you had to keep repeating them over and over again. If they forgave you your sins, you'd be done with. But instead, they were repetitive. When Jesus came and died for your sins, he provided that once-for-all final sacrifice by which your sins were forgiven. Back in the Garden of Eden, we've talked about it a couple of times, God came to Adam and Eve after their sin. He sought them out, even though they were sinners lying to him. And he said, here's what's going to happen now. The wages of sin is death. You've brought death and destruction into the human race. Somebody has to die just for you to continue to live. And so we're going to take an animal or two, probably lambs. We're going to kill them. Shed their blood in your place for a time. You're going to wear their skins. And then as the Bible unfolds, you find the patriarchs sacrificing lambs. You find the children of Israel sacrificing lambs. Then you have this big system under Moses sacrificing lambs and the Passover lamb and all of that. And then finally you get down through the corridors of time and you have John the Baptist coming out of the wilderness chewing on locusts and wild, or wild you know, honey and all this stuff. And then he sees Jesus and what does he say? It's the most profound thing in all of human history, perhaps. He says, behold, the Lamb of God, the final Lamb, the Lamb that God promised would come in the book of Genesis, who all of these other lambs represented and typified, now he's here. And so Jesus, he goes to the cross, he dies on the cross, and what does he say from the cross as he's dying? He says, it is finished it's done. No more lambs, no more sacrifice. I have accomplished it. And now men can have the forgiveness of sins for the asking. Justification. That's the act of God by which he declares a believing sinner righteous. When you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, you remain a sinner. You're still in a mortal body subject to sin, but you are declared right with God because Jesus has taken your sin upon himself and given you his righteousness. Think about your bank account in heaven, filled with sin. Jesus has an account too, filled with righteousness. When he died on the cross for you, then you accept him as your savior. He withdraws all of your sin and he deposits his righteousness into your account. And so when they pull up your account on QuickBooks in heaven and they say, let's see what Gene has in his heavenly account. Wow, abundant, overflowing righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. What happened to his sin? It's on the Lord, the sinless one. The Bible says he bore our iniquities for us. It's an amazing translation. You know, a lot of times when I explain imputed sin, people object. They say, I, I don't have nothing imputed to me. I wasn't Adam and Eve. Hey, you want imputed sin in a sense because then you can also have the imputed righteousness of God, and that's the only way you get it. 
God has to declare you righteous because of your belief in Jesus Christ. Obedience to the law of Moses could never justify you. You could never be righteous by keeping the law because righteousness is a matter of the heart. Jesus looked at the most spiritual guys ever who were keeping the right law, the law of Moses, and he said, look, you haven't ever murdered anybody, but if you've hated anybody or been angry with anybody, you've murdered them in your heart, you're guilty of breaking the law, you're going to hell. And right then you think, well, then there's no hope for me. If you break just one law, you're guilty and you deserve death. You know, when I get pulled over for speeding, I'm going 55 in a 35 zone. And the officer comes up and he says, can I see your license and registration? I don't say, no need for that today, officer. I'm keeping every other known law of man. I've only broken this one law. Every other law, I mean, you know, let's put this on a scale. I mean, all the other laws I'm keeping must outweigh this one broken law. If I keep arguing with him, he'll declare me 5150 and take me away. I've broken the law. I'm guilty and I have to pay a penalty. And so we need the justification that is only through faith in Jesus Christ. And now Paul's close includes a warning, verse 40. Beware, therefore, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you. Now, Paul is quoting Habakkuk 1.5. The prophet Habakkuk was told that God was going to do a work that he would find unbelievable. In his day, God was going to send the Chaldeans to judge his people Israel and carry them away captive. And Habakkuk says, man, that is mind-blowing that you would use the Gentiles to judge your people. Similarly, if the Jews after the resurrection of Jesus did not believe he was their Savior, God would begin to save Gentiles who did. And in a sense, the belief of the Gentiles would highlight and accentuate the unbelief of the Jews, and it would serve as a judgment upon them. Paul's sermon was brilliant. Our speaking may not seem brilliant, but it can have all these same elements. We can let people know that God is working in and through human history to accomplish his eternal purposes. We can let people know that human beings are lost in their sins and need to be saved. That God came in human flesh in the person of Jesus in order to save any and all who would believe in him. That he died, but he rose again according to the plan of God that was prophesied beforehand in the Bible that he offers forgiveness of sin and justification by grace through faith to all who believe in him, and that the alternative is to reject God's gracious offer of salvation, to remain a sinner and be separated from God eternally in hell. My desire is that all of us have a renewed understanding of our commission to go out into the world sharing Jesus. We all have certain non-believers we must deal with, co-workers and fellow students. Let's begin again to see them as a synagogue that we have been invited to share in. Yes, it's going to be tough. Yes, you're going to be persecuted, misunderstood, mistreated. What do you expect? This is spiritual warfare. And so I want to see those people with God's compassion and, and ask him how I might live among them. Some of us have other little synagogues where we sit as believers waiting to be asked to share. That's great. 
you know, the people who provide various services for you that, you know, uh, whoever they are. I'm not saying not to go to Christians or, you know, but I, I think I will say this. I think if we're only always around Christians and everybody who does things for us is Christians, we're getting too ingrown. We need to be able to sit among unbelievers, not getting stumbled, but being ready to share with them. And some of us do need to quit being so ingrown. We might need to find some synagogue to associate with so that we're in a place where non-believers could call upon us. They're so needy, people out in the world. They really are. They're going to make it hard for you, but it's worth it in the end. Think about the people. If you got saved as an adult, think about the people that you despise. Think of what, the way you treated Christians, what you thought about Christians, Jesus freaks and weirdos, how you didn't want to be around them, how you, you know, uh, spoke about them behind their back, backstabbed them and all of that. What do you expect? The devil is at work. He's alive and well and he's on planet Earth and he has a very short time. It's a very short time within which to work. If we know these things, so does he. May God bless us as we seek to reach out to those around us. Father, we do thank you for these things. And I pray, Lord, that we would have, in a beautiful way, a renewed sense of how you want to use us. It's really not even so much a matter of... Uh, well, in, all through Acts, Lord, people were asking the disciples and the apostles to share with them. And so, let's start there. Father, put us in places where people ask us to share with them. For our part, we just want to make sure we have some of those places where there are some people who need to know Christ. And so, each of us, Lord, I pray that we would look at our lives and develop a strategy right where we're at or some new places that we need to uh, venture into so that this wonderful, glorious gospel of grace can be shared. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's stand together. The guys are up here to pray with you. If you're not a Christian, not a believer in Jesus Christ, uh, they will pray with you to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. So come forward as we close during the song. Make your way down and just say, hey, I want to receive Christ. I want to know the Lord. Uh, if you're here and you need prayer for healing or something going on in your life, come on down. Start right now and, and uh, as we sing and just wait your turn and, and just receive prayer. What a beautiful thing. The Bible says that the uh, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And, and that as we pray one for another, God does wonderful things. And so if you need prayer, you want to have that point of contact, that's great. Uh, come on out Wednesday night, see what we're about. Uh, you'll be glad you did. May God bless you and keep you in Jesus' name.